have a Sunday school out the back on my left through that door if you trust our people with your kids. Fantastic. <laughs> That'll be great. Well, welcome. I know Mikey has said welcome, and I'll say it again to some of you are new here. Uh, it's great to have you. Uh, great to see you. Um, thanks for coming along. Now, to someone in the band, it was their surprise, and I'm not going to name the bass player, but she said, um, hey, have we finished 1 Samuel already? And I said to her, yes, once you get to chapter 31, um, you can't go any further on 1 Samuel. So we have finished it, if you were here last week, 1 Samuel. We're going to pick 2 Samuel up uh, next year. And, uh, but before that, because it's coming into Christmas, we thought we'd do a small series. Now, we always do our prayer, looking at a prayer at the end of the month with, with uh, Peter Cowie. He's going to do that, I hope. And, um, but leading up to Christmas, we're going to look at the expected saviour. The expected saviour. Mainly three talks, and they're mainly going to be two out of the three. That's why I said mainly. Uh, the Old Testament and how some of the Old Testament prophets expected a Messiah, expected a Saviour, expected a Redeemer, but probably if they could see him, it wasn't the one they thought they were going to get. I'll be in the New Testament today looking at a man who actually saw the Messiah, saw the Saviour, the one who he was expected to see, heard him, talked about him, confessed about him, and yet his expectations as life went on ended him to doubt. And so that's what I want to look at today. And of course, that man, that prophet, is John the Baptist and how he saw Jesus, witnessed about Jesus, and yet he doubted about Jesus as well. His expectations um, was that someone different was going to come. And so that's what we're going to look at just before Christmas. And then, of course, on the 20th of December, we'll look at the expected saviour who has come. So that's what we want to look at this morning. Matthew 13, Jesus is talking. You don't have to turn to it um, unless you don't trust me. And it's funny because I can hear a lot of Bibles turning to Matthew 13. Um, so Matthew 13... Jesus is talking to his disciples. And he says to them a few parables either side of this quote in verses 16 and 17. And he says to them, Blessed are those who have heard. Blessed are those who have seen. And he, he carries that on. He said, The Old Testament prophets... And the righteous men and women of the Old Testament, or before he had come, desired to hear the things that his disciples were hearing, that desired to see the things that Jesus was doing. Can you imagine that? That the disciples were there, and Jesus is saying to them, do you know the great ones of old, the Daniels, the Job, the Isaiahs, the Jeremiahs, the Ezekiels, the Moseses, they desired, that their heart was that they could hear the Messiah himself. They could see what he would do. They could listen to him and that would be, oh, that's what they lived for. 
but instead they prophesied about his coming, what he would be like, what he would do, and maybe what he would say. So the disciples are in this unique position, better position than all of the righteous before them, all the Old Testament prophets before them. And Jesus says to them, you are blessed because of it. Let's turn, now you can turn to John chapter 1 and look at a man, John the Baptist, who actually did experience and was blessed like the disciples in seeing Jesus, in hearing Jesus. Now, in verse 19, some of the priests or, or the, um, the Jews sends the priests, the Levites, to ask John the Baptist a few questions. And some of them questions were, are you a prophet? And he says, no. Are you Elijah? And he says, no. But this is what I am, he says in verse 23 of John chapter 1. I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So that's, that's who he is. He is making straight the way of the Lord. In verse 26, John answered them and he said to them, I baptize with water, but the one who stands amongst you, who you do not know, it is he is coming after me. He is going to be preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. And in verse 29, the next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him. And this was John's witness to Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he who I said is going to, uh, after me comes a man who is preferred before me because he was before me. I did not know him, but I had been revealed to Israel Therefore, I baptized with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Again, the next day in verse 35, John stood with his two disciples and looking at Jesus, he walked and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Quite a witness, isn't it, of John the Baptist to Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God. If you look a little further down the road from John's statements about who Jesus is, about the Spirit of God descending on him and not just descending on him, but remaining on him, the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. In chapter 4 of Matthew, John's arrested. In verse 12, he is put in prison. And he's going to be there for quite a while. Matthew 11, turn to Matthew 11 if you can, says this. Let's read a little further. Now, in this context, in, in Matthew 11, don't forget in Matthew 4, John's been put in prison. Now we're up to Matthew 11. He's been there for a long time. 
And in verse 1 of Matthew 11 says this, Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples, he departed there to teach and to preach in the cities. When John heard, sorry, and when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples to ask Jesus a question. And this was the question from John the Baptist from prison. Are you the coming one, or should we look for another? Jesus answered them and said, Go tell John the things you have heard and see. The blind see and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised. The poor have the good news preached to them. Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. As they departed, the two disciples of John, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, What did you go out and see in the wilderness? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out and see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in kings' houses. But what did you go out and see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, but more than a prophet. For it is written of him, and it says this, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Jesus still speaking here in verse 11. Surely I say to you, amongst those born of woman, there has not been risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. He is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than me. So here we have John in prison. He's been there for a while. We have seen what he has confessed in John chapter 1. This is the Son of God. This is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. This is the one who the Holy Spirit has descended and has remained. This is the one. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If you read on from John chapter 1, um, John will also, John the Baptist will also, I must, he'll say, I must decrease and he must increase. The one after me is preferred before me because why? He was before me. And now what we've just read in Matthew 11, we have in verse 3, John sends his disciples from prison asking Jesus a question. After his witness of John, now he sends his disciples with a question. Are you the coming one or should we look for another one? That's a funny question. How many times have we always called the disciple of Jesus, Thomas, doubting Thomas? But we never refer to John, the Baptist, as doubting John. But here he doubts. Are you the one or should I look for another? What was John doubting? There's different theories on what John was actually doubting. Charles Price, who is one of my favourite commentators and teachers, says this. He says, It is unlikely that John was questioning the identity uh, of Jesus, for John had publicly acknowledged him, baptised him, testified about him. It's more than likely that John was questioning Jesus' method and his ministry. End of quote. 
That is a possibility. That is a good possibility that John was questioning the method of Jesus and his ministry of what and how and what he was saying and what he was doing. But I think there might be more here. I honestly think John doubted the person of Christ. I could be wrong. I don't like going against Charles Price, put it that way. But I will today. And this is why I'll tell you why. Because of verse 3 is not questioning what Jesus was doing. It might lead to that question. But John asks, are you the one? Are you the one we're expecting? Or do I look for another? I want to ask you a question. Have you ever doubted the Bible? Have you ever doubted God's word? Have you ever doubted what Jesus did? I was reading just this week that uh, one of my favorite commentators and teachers also, David Platt, got an email from a friend who was a pastor at a church, rather large church, and he was going through really hard times. And so he wrote David Platt an email saying, I have never found faith so hard as to now. I am doubting everything I've done, everything I thought, and everything I believed. And David Platt was amazed. He had to kind of go, hold on, what's going on here? Here's a guy I look up to, a godly guy. And now he is finding faith so, so hard. I want to quote three men to you. You might have heard a couple of them talking about doubt that you might have even today. Alistair McGrath says this about doubt. First, he looks at unbelief. Unbelief is a decision to live your life as there is no God. It is a deliberate decision to reject Christ and all that he is and all that he stands for. But doubt is something different. Doubt arises in the context of faith. It is a wistful longing to be sure of the things in which we trust. John MacArthur, some of you might have heard of him. Some of you have him on a screensaver and on your laptop, which is really kind of, you know, weird. Um, he says this about doubt. I'm sorry. Um, when the New Testament talks about doubt, whether you're talking about the Gospels or the Epistles, its focus is always on believers. And that's very important to understand. It is as if you have to believe in something before you can doubt it. You have to be committed before you begin to question it. So doubt is always a unique problem of the believer. But my favorite one, who is one of my favorite authors, is Charles Spurgeon. And he says this about doubt, an honest thought about doubt. Some of us have preached the word of God for years. And we have been the means of working faith in others and establishing them in the knowledge of the fundamental doctrines of the Bible, but nevertheless been subjects to the most fearful and violent doubts as to the truth of the very gospel we have preached. You ever think of that from a preacher of that caliber, that writer? He's talking about himself because I know he struggled not only with doubt, but with depression. That the gospel he preached and seen the power of it was sometimes the gospel he doubted in his own life. 
The reality is that even for those who seem the most faithful, faith is sometimes hard. And that was John the Baptist. There were three things that could uh, often trigger and can trigger doubt. One is a difficult situation. Two is unmet expectations. And three is limited perception. And you'll find that John the Baptist was going through all three. Difficult situation, he was experiencing shame, hunger, physical torment, emotional struggle, and loneliness in prison. Unmet expectation, John had prophesied that judgment was coming and that the Christ was, would bring it in Matthew 3, 11 to 12. But Roman rule was still in place. Things were carrying on as normal. In fact, Jesus wasn't going to the high places. He was going to the low places. Sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, and so on. And thirdly, limited perception. He didn't understand everything that was happening. And maybe he didn't understand everything that wasn't happening as he thought it should. And so... John sends his disciples to Jesus and he asks them this question, are you the one? Are you the one? Jesus responds and he responds nicely to John's disciples in verse 4. Go tell John the things you hear and the things you see. The things you hear and the things you see. Remember, Matthew 13, that's what Jesus was saying. Blessed are you who see these things and hear these things. The old prophets desperately wanted it, but didn't get it. And so he tells his disciples, John's disciples, go back and tell them the things you hear and the things you see. And then Jesus goes down and he, he, he virtually tells them the things he has done. The blind see, the lame walk. The lepers are healed, the deaf hear, the big one, next one, the dead are raised, that's a whopper, and the good news is preached to them. It's almost like he is quoting to them Isaiah 60, Isaiah 61, in fact. And if we look at Isaiah 61, and if you trust me, you don't have to turn to it, but Jesus is saying this. And this is the same thing he quoted and he read way back in Luke 4 when he was in the synagogue at Nazareth. He quoted this to the people. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me, what? To preach the good tidings to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives. Uh, and the opening of prisons for those who are bound to proclaim that this is the acceptable year, or some versions say this is the favorable year of the Lord. And in Luke 4, he stops there. He doesn't carry on. He's not a comma. He's not a full stop. But the Lord stops there in Luke 4. And he says to the people in the synagogue when he read it, in your hearing you have heard this has come to pass. They didn't like that, so they go and try and throw Jesus off a cliff. But it's this last bit that Jesus misses that maybe John thought was coming, the day of vengeance of our God. 
Maybe that's his expectations of the Messiah to come, that the day of vengeance would come with the Messiah's coming. And so as Isaiah looks at and seems to suggest to us that judgment is coming when the one who is promised comes, if it doesn't come, then why not ask the question, are you the one or is there another one to come? Because you aren't ruling and you are not judging as I thought you would. But as we know, judgment is to come, but not on his first coming, but on his second. I'm sure John's there in prison thinking, looking at the method of what Jesus was doing, how he was doing things, his ministry was going to be like his. What did John preach? What was John like? Well, he caused a stir in all of Judea. He was loud. He wore camel's clothes. He ate locusts and honey. Oh, honey's okay. It was the locusts. John preached righteousness and judgment and repentance. Surely the coming Messiah would just take over his ministry and he would become lesser. The Messiah would become greater and he would just keep going. Foot to the pedal and just keep going. Judgment, wrath is coming. But it wasn't. It's not what Jesus did at all, was it? In fact, some of the old, uh, other older prophets talked about that he would not cry out, that he would not shout, that a bruised reed he would not actually break, or a smoldering wick he's not going to put out. He would preach grace and mercy and love, and he would spend most of his time with the tax collectors and the sinners. And so what John expected and what John saw led him to question, what's going on? And with that question, it may lead him to doubt. And so it is with us. So it is with me anyway. Sometimes our expectations of Christ can lead us to disappointment because we think one way, we have read one way about how and why and what he is going to do. Maybe we've misread it. Maybe there's a comma there that we've forgot. And so we're expecting him to do this, this, and this, but maybe we haven't read everything. Maybe we've got our understanding not quite right. And so it leads to our trust and our expectation of Jesus and the things we thought he would do, he doesn't do. And I know probably six years ago my first talk here was about how I was saved, and I'm not going into that, but I remember a stage there that I was sitting on my bed after I became a Christian, I thought Jesus would make my life a lot better. He says I'll have peace and joy and I'll rejoice. And so I left the racing game, which I thought was sinful, and, and tried to get a job in the salmon farm, which was owned by Christian people, and I didn't get it. And I was disappointed with Jesus. I was sitting on the end of my bed wondering, well, where is he? My expectations of him were shattered. And my faith waned because I thought he would do something that I wanted. But that was my limited understanding of who he was and what he could do. And so we're not, we're not to be too hard. I don't want to be too hard on John here. 
because I've been there myself many times. You'd think at this point, though, that Jesus or even Jesus' disciples could actually rip into John for that question. But he does the very opposite. He takes this opportunity, this is Jesus, not only to defend John, but affirm him and what he has been doing and the work that he has done, which is amazing from verses 11, sorry, 7 to 11. Jesus starts quoting, this was, he starts quoting what John was going to do. And Jesus here in verse 10 is quoting basically Isaiah 40 and Malachi 3. Behold, I send a message, messenger before me. Not only a messenger, but this one will prepare my way. But later on, it gets even better. Jesus, it's funny because Jesus calls him Elijah. Jesus calls him not only a prophet, but the greatest. But when the Pharisees asked, who are you, John? Are you Elijah? Nah. You're a prophet? No. But Jesus said, yes, John, you are Elijah. You are a prophet. But Jesus goes even further in verse 11. This is amazing to me. He says, among those born of a woman, there is none greater than John the Baptist. After questioning who he is, is there another one? There is none greater, born of a woman, than John the Baptist. Luke 7 adds a little bit more detail. There is no greater prophet than John the Baptist, says Jesus. Wow, that's pretty, pretty good. That's a cool statement to have on your CV. There is none greater. Now, at this stage, for me, a bit cynical, um, I would love at this stage, when Jesus is saying this, for our disciple Peter to put up his hand and ask one of them questions. It sounds stupid, but we all want Peter to ask this question anyway. Peter looks stupid with the questions he asked, but I'm sure all the disciples and you and I think, thanks, Peter, for asking that, because I don't, I don't get it. And for me here, when Jesus says that John is the greatest prophet ever, the greatest one born of a woman ever, I would wish Peter would just put up his hand and said, Jesus, is he truly greater than Moses? That's the question I'd want, because I'm Moses' biggest fan. I'd love to know what Moses, how Moses ticked. I mean, David, and you've got, you know, Job and Isaiah and Ezekiel, fine. They're a wee bit complicated. But Moses wasn't. Moses was one of the greatest prophets. Why do I say that? Because Moses pastored three to four million people, grumbling, moaning people for 40 years. That's why he's my hero. And when God comes to him and says to him, I'll give you an option, Moses, I can wipe this out and we'll start again. And Moses says, no. What a guy. I wouldn't have said no. <laughs> yes, start from my family and we'll go again. Good idea. But Moses says, no. How would it look? How would your name look, God? amongst the nations to bring this nation out to die in the wilderness. Blot me out of the book of life, not these people. And so I'm, I'm Moses' biggest fan. 
How did he do that? He has one mistake and that costs him. And John is greater than him. What do we make of this claim? This is my thoughts anyway. I think Jesus' statement about John had to do firstly not with John's person, but John's position. Not with his person, but his position as a prophet. He was a prophet, the highest position of honor being a spokesman for God. But he was not just any prophet. This was the one who was prophesied about. This prophet was prophesied about that he would announce the Messiah, the coming of the Christ, the Savior of the world, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He will be the one to announce that. Many have come before him, all them great ones, like Moses, like Elijah, like Isaiah, like Ezekiel, like Jeremiah, but none of these holy men had the privilege of the position of, so it is, like blowing the trumpet, the Messiah is here. The Savior of the world is here. The arrival of our King has come. So I think Jesus is talking about John's position as a prophet announcing himself to the world. But just when you think that's great, to have probably the greatest position as a prophet, Jesus carries on. For, to me, is a more astounding than John being the greatest. In verse 11, the second part of verse 11, but he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. I thought, now, okay. Grab the commentaries and see what they say. Because that's a tough one. Is Jesus saying that you and I will be greater than John? Once again, I think he is not referring to our persons. In fact, I'm pretty sure he's not. I'd never make, like to make the claim that I am greater than John the Baptist. That could be a sacking offence here at Hokonui. But I think it was, if we follow the line that John's position was greater than any other, then more than likely then it's to do with our position in the kingdom of God. It's not our person, but our position. And what is our position? Well, we are this side of the cross of Christ. John didn't see the whole picture. John never saw the love of God, the provision of God, the cross of God. He could preach holiness and righteousness and judgment and the wrath of God. His message always seemed to carry the threat of judgment and destruction. And these are truths, and they will come to pass. But Jesus was more than that, far more than that. His sacrifice that we know, his grace, his mercy, his cross, his death, his resurrection, his Holy Spirit living in us. 
and his love for sinners. And so today, this morning, you and I are in a wonderful position, better than all the prophets and all the righteous men and women who have come before. We are in a better position. Amazing. Do you think like that? Do you wake up this morning saying, oh, my position in Christ. I know him. I know a better complete story than any of the old prophets and my heroes there. Prophetesses through the Old Testament and the, the great woman of Sarah and Ruth and Esther, I get a, a better picture than they do. D.A. Carson says this, coming to an end. So often, he says, Christians want to establish their greatness with reference to their work, reference to their giving, their intelligence, their preaching, their gifts, their courage, their discernment. But Jesus quickly affirmed that even the least believer is greater than Moses and John the Baptist, simply, not simply because of his or her ability, but because we are living on the right side of the cross of Jesus Christ. So we can point him out with greater clarity, greater understanding than all his forerunners ever could. If we truly believe this and not doubt, if we truly believe this, and not doubt. It will dissipate all the cheap vying for position in this world and force us to recognize that true significance lies simply in our witness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. No boasting. We have nothing to boast about that we are born on the right side of the cross. And therefore, with this book, we get a complete picture of who Jesus really is. All the prophets desired, all the righteous ones desired to see him, to hear him, all of them, and they didn't get it. But we, through faith in his word, can see what he did. We can hear what he spoke. What a privilege that is. But my question is today, what are we doing with it? What do you do with that? The position that you and I are in, knowing Jesus died, took the wrath, took my sin, took my place, and rose again and is coming again. What are we, how are we living? How does that affect us? should turn our world upside down, that we know more than that of the old. Even in our doubts, we know that. So the expected Saviour has come, and we know him. We know what he said, we know what he did, we have the Holy Spirit to understand more. We know that he's coming again, we know he is going to judge he is going to judge sinners, the lost ones, and he is going to judge you and me for the works done for him. With the knowledge that we have of him, he will also judge our works.
The expected saviour has come. What are we doing with it? May it be that our pride goes out the door and we simply witness of what we know. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, even though some of us here today may even be doubting your very word, give them the understanding that it is because they belong to you that they may have a lack of trust, may have a lack of understanding, Maybe they're like John and they're going through a difficult time in their life. Maybe expectations haven't been met and they don't see the whole picture. Lord, I pray that you'll keep them and that they'll, tr- they'll find as they come out such a wonderful saviour we have. Lord, I want to thank you that we know how great you are I know there's more to know about you. We haven't got it all. There's so much more to know about you. But we know so much of what you did to bring us back to you. How much you loved us. How much you cared for us. How much you died for us. And so with that, Lord, with that knowledge... Drop it to our hearts and help us witness to this dying world that we have a saviour that has come and is coming again. But when he comes again, he will come in judgment. He will show his wrath. And so, Lord, let us and help us witness to this fact. We give you thanks. In the Saviour's wonderful name. Amen.